25 minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Monday as we head uh, back to work on this Monday morning. JM in the AM, nine days format. In fact, uh, today in Erev Tishabov format here at JM in the AM with many reminders about what we planned. With many reminders about what we plan on doing um, uh, tomorrow morning and through the day on the stream at jmnam.org as we get set for uh, tomorrow morning's uh, Tisha B'Av program with an appropriate Kinnis service led by Goldwasser. He'll be with me about uh, 7.30 tomorrow morning as we do a live Kinnis service on the radio. Uh, then throughout the day tomorrow, we're going to be uh, airing on jmnam.org on our live stream, the OU's presentation of a Tisha B'Av day, Tisha B'Av morning. That'll be going on uh, through the day on our stream at jmnam.org. And then in the 7 o'clock hour Eastern time tomorrow night, just before the end of the fast, about two hours before the end of the fast, uh, the Charlie Harari Project Inspire presentation will be carried live by us as well as many other outlets, as uh, Charlie Harari is going to be leading a um, a fascinating, positive way to wrap up the fast uh, tomorrow between 7 and 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So that is what's on tap, and uh, today, of course, we will continue with our series of lectures by Beryl Wine, appropriate for this Erev Tisha B'Av day. And uh, we will slowly, on Wednesday, drift back into our regular format here at JM in the AM and JM in the AM.org. Rabbi Beryl Wine has a lecture entitled The Three Weeks. That's how we begin a Monday morning at JM in the AM. The three weeks between the 17th of Tammuz and the ninth day of Av are the saddest days of the Jewish calendar. They were established by our rabbis to commemorate the destruction of the first and later of the second temple and of the ensuing exile and dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the world. They are days of national mourning commemorating a national tragedy. However, they have deep personal significance as well. In one way, the limiting of the period of mourning to three weeks is a necessity in Jewish life. Would we mourn every terrible tragedy that has befallen us in our long and bloody history, there would not be enough days in the calendar year for all of the observances. The Novi Yirmiyah in Eicha already points out to that fact in his prophetic view. Who can give wood that I had the ability to weep, but I'm all dried up already. There are no more tears. What shall the Jewish people say after 2,500 years of almost unrequited horror, after all of the events that have befallen us on a national and a personal level, there are no tears left. 
There is no possibility for us to adequately mourn what has happened. The feeling that engulfs us is so overwhelming and so horrendous that we are numbed by it. And therefore, because we are in that state of almost catatonic depression, our rabbi stepped in, in their infinite wisdom, in their understanding of human psychology, especially the psychology of bereavement and of grief and of comfort and consolation, and ordained for us a set series of days and of observances that would enable us to funnel all of our grief to a proper focus and to allow a true expression of the feelings that exist within us. So the rabbis limited our observance of mourning to these three weeks of the year. And they did so in their characteristic fashion. By characteristic fashion, I mean that they gave these days a halachic framework. Without a halachic framework, without the rules and ritual and minutiae which constitute always the commemoration of all events in Jewish life, whether they be sad or happy, these events sooner or later lose their significance, lose their meaning, and do not survive in history. One of the terrible tragedies which compounds the tragedy that it could have commemorated, but one of the terrible tragedies of our time is that no proper halachic outlet has been found for the commemoration of the Holocaust, for the commemoration of the destruction of European Jewry. And therefore, in all of the non-halachic commemorations which have come into being, moving as they are, inspirational as they are, fraught with meaning and with remembrance as they all are, and they nevertheless are beginning to fade, the outlines are beginning to disappear, and we hear often survivors say when we are gone no one will remember no one will be able to say no one will be able to relate what happened even though there is a tremendous spate of literature on the holocaust there are books upon books that have been written and will continue to be written the subject is almost inexhaustible at least from a literary point of view nevertheless the fear is legitimate and ever present that somehow as an historic event it will not survive in spite of the enormity, in spite of the barbarity, in spite of everything. And the reason for this is because in our orphaned generation we have not been able to give it an halachic framework. We've not been able to invest it with the eternity that halacha brings to a matter. And therefore, all of the commemorations and remembrances, inspired as they may be, have within themselves the ring of being finite, the ring of a hollow ring almost, that it will not last.
our rabbis, when they commemorated the destruction of the first temple and of the second temple, when they commemorated the weeks of sadness, they did so always in an halachic framework. They said, these things are permitted and these things are forbidden. It has nothing to do with your emotion. It has nothing to do with how you feel that day. It has nothing to do with one's own personal wishes and desires. The greatness of halacha is that it overrides and supersedes the emotions of the person at that moment. I have to eat matzah on the night of Pesach whether I feel like it or not. And because I have to and because I do, the night of Pesach eventually carries great significance and meaning for me and my children and grandchildren, for all the family of Israel. It has survived for 3,300 years because it is not dependent upon how I feel on that night or what my emotions are or whether I'm tired or whether I'm depressed or whether I'm in a good mood or a bad mood. The greatness of halacha is that it supersedes human frailty. It supersedes the vagaries of human behavior. It is an objective standard that overrides all of our subjective problems and in so doing guarantees that what it comes to commemorate will be remembered eternally and will have deep meaning even thousands of years later after the event that it commemorates took place. And therefore the three weeks are the symbol of that greatness of halacha, the greatness of being able to perpetuate an event in historic terms over long, long periods of time and make it real to generations that did not see it. The structure of the three weeks, most of the commentaries to the Talmud in Masechus Tainus come with the same approach that in Avelis, in mourning, there are three stages. By the way, just as an aside, the words of the rabbis do not require proofs from other sciences to make them valid. However, in this special field of bereavement counseling, of grief and of comfort, which has arisen over the past uh, 10 to 20 years, the study of grief has shown that there are three separate stages of the grief itself, and that in each of the stages a different response is necessary. The halacha saw those three stages as the first stage being the immediate tragedy and dealing with the pain that we call the week of Shiva the week of the seven days of mourning when the person sits on the floor when the person weeps when the outside world is of no consequence when the person is overcome yet by the tear that has occurred in the fabric of his or her life and the person has to deal with grief on an intimate personal basis 
That is the week of Shiva. After the week ends, there is the period of Shloshim. The period of Shloshim is a 30-day period, meaning an additional 23 days after the period of the Shiva. And this is marked by less restrictions, by a person getting out into the outside world. But it is also marked by the fact that he or she is not prepared to resume a fully normal life, not prepared to be exactly as things were before because the psychological realization that the person must adjust to is that things never will be as they were before that life has changed irrevocably Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall all the king's men and all the king's horses can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again life is that Humpty Dumpty you just can't pick up all the pieces and paste them together and go on and Shloshim is that quality, that intermediate quality of the resumption of life, but of the resumption of life in full cognizance of the fact that life as it was before the event will never be that way again. Finally, there is an 11-month period of mourning for one's parents, Yud Bey's Hodesh. 11 months plus the month of Shloshim. That already is that for almost all purposes the person is in the world. He has resumed all of his normal activities. But nevertheless, the halacha forbids him certain pleasures. It forbids him certain social activities. It forbids him certain things in his lifestyle that he had been accustomed to. Because now it is not only a question of easing the pain and of assuaging the grief, it's a question of remembrance, it's a question of honor, it's a question of priorities, it's a question of being able to transform the scar that exists within us from a wound to a source of remembrance to a source of inspiration even if I may say so, to a source of hope rather than to a source of sadness. Well, these three stages of grief are represented to us in the three weeks as well, except in opposite order. The three weeks themselves, meaning the period of time from the 17th of Tammuz to the first day of Av, according to the custom of the Ashkenazim, and according to the custom of the Svardim until the week in which Tishabov falls, that could be viewed as having the same types of prohibitions, the same type of restraints upon us as the 12-month period for parent. We are still in the world. We are still part of our normal existence. But we remember that a tragedy happened we bring to our conscious memory and behavior the events that occurred so long ago. And that causes us to pause and to realize the story of the Jewish people and the story of life itself, that there are many more clouds than there is sunlight, and many more problems than there are solutions. Rare is the person that walks through life without major 
tragedy without major problems. Adam la'omal yulod, a person is born to toil, he's born to frustration, born to sadness, if I may say so. As I'll tell us that the words of Beishamai are correct. Noach lo la'adam shalom nivra. If man would have his choice, it would be better for him to choose never to have been created, never to have to pass through this veil of tears, never to have to experience physical life on this earth in comparison to the spiritual life which exists in the world to come, which exists in a higher plane of living. But since we were not given the choice, al you were created without consultation. You didn't, no one asked you if you wanted to be here. And you were born against your will. One of the reasons probably that babies are born and always wailing and crying. They don't want to come out. And life itself forces us to live. And no one leaves this world willingly either. We are forced to depart against our wish. And therefore we have no choice either in the din v'cheshben, in the reckoning, in the accounting of our time and efforts. That priority of Jewish life, that understanding that what happens to us We would prefer that it never happened. But since it is out of our hands, we have to deal with it. And that is the idea of the mourning period, which represents the first section of the three weeks. We remember, we remember that there was such a thing as Jerusalem. Jewish people have kept that memory alive for thousands of years. Wherever Jews were in the world, Jerusalem was a real place. Jerusalem was not a political ideal. It was not even a national homeland. But it was a goal. It was a memory. It was home. And a Jew has never felt home. Even we in this blessed country that allows us all of our freedoms and in whose life we participate so fully. A Jew never feels his home at home as he does in Jerusalem as he does in his home there is an inner home within our souls that recognizes where we belong the halacha is what kept it alive the fact that in the three weeks we can't listen to music the fact in the three weeks we don't take haircuts or shave The fact that in the three weeks we minimize our joy. The fact that in the three weeks there are no weddings, there are no bar mitzvah parties. There are all sorts of restrictions, inhibitions. None major, all bearable. None interfering with our ability to earn a living or even to maintain our lifestyle. And there are numerous loopholes which allow us life as we are accustomed to. Nevertheless, those halachic restrictions by themselves, by their mere existence, serve to remind us of the fact that there once was a Jerusalem and that there once was a temple, that the Jewish people are not to be satisfied 
in the most comfortable of exiles. They are not to say, this is my home, but that there is a gnawing need within us to find Jerusalem again, to mourn over it and to rebuild it. At the beginning of this century, one of the great rabbis of Eastern Europe, Rabbi Meir Simcha HaKohen of Dvinsk, of Lithuania, uh, of Latvia really, the famous Or Sameach, wrote in his commentary to the Chumash, Mesha Chochma, a short synopsis of Jewish history, how Jews come into an exile, how Jews develop and participate in the economy and social life of the country that they find themselves in, how they wax prosperous, how they are able to enrich the life of their neighbors, how they are able to contribute to the society of the country that they find themselves in. And then suddenly and almost inexorably, opposite forces begin to take hold. Resentment comes, hatred, bigotry. And the Jew eventually pays a price, sometimes in exile, sometimes in death and destruction. And he is driven to find another place on God's earth. In our time, there are no other places. We have been everywhere. We've seen everything. There's nowhere left to run. But Mayor Simcha there says, in one of the most pithy statements which appears in his great work, Hoi ha'omrim Berlin shehu Yerushalayim. Woe to those who say that Berlin is Jerusalem. He said that in 1904. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews who believed that Berlin was Jerusalem. Who believed in the Kaiser, who believed in German Enlightenment, who believed in secular humanism, and all the great liberal values of 19th and 20th century man. Hoy, woe to those who said that Berlin is Jerusalem. Because Berlin became the symbol of the destruction, not only of Jerusalem, but the destruction of those who believed in Berlin. The destruction of all of European Jewry. Symbol of evil in its worst form. Of atrocities beyond description. Of hatred beyond understanding. And if we could paraphrase him today, I think the Mayor Simcha would write, Woe to those who think that New York is Jerusalem, that Williamsburg is Jerusalem, that Monroe is Jerusalem, that Muncie is Jerusalem, that Los Angeles is Jerusalem, that London is Jerusalem. Woe to them. Miscalculation. And the first part of the three weeks, therefore, with its inhibitions and restraints, with its slight limitations, serves to jog our memory, serves to point out to us that not everything is right, and that we are not as comfortable as we feel we are, that we should not be foolish enough to think that we live in a paradise and that we somehow are not part and parcel of the Jewish experience 
which is so clear and so penetrating to those who only wish to look at it honestly and to deal with it intelligently. An interesting point that has always fascinated me. Why did the rabbis ordain that a period of 12 months of mourning for one's parents is necessary? Whereas when it comes to the mourning regarding Rahman al-Islam, other members of the family, a spouse, children, siblings, 30 days was the period of mourning that was established. There was no 12-month duration of mourning as regarding one's parents. There are two insights that I have always felt apply, and they apply towards the understanding of the three weeks as well. Insight number one is that the death of parents, painful, tragic as it may be, is natural. It's part of the world. Especially if one is privileged to have had parents that have lived long and productive lives. Our rabbis tell us that when our father Abraham came to mourn his wife Sarah, so it says in the Torah of Kosa, he came to weep over her. So the word Kosa is written with a small chof. And our rabbis say that he wept in moderation because she lived a long and full life. It's an acceptance of the human condition. People who live well into their 80s and their 90s, they pass away. It's tragic. We certainly feel the loss. A mother is a mother at any age. A father is a father at any age and under any circumstance. But nevertheless we can come to grips with it. That reason alone is why the Torah gave, why the halacha gave us a 12-month period of mourning, so that we should not come to grips with it. That we should not say, well, that's the way it goes. Which is the uh, macho American view of death. We hide death as though it doesn't exist. The entire funeral undertaker industry is to portray death not only as an invisible thing, but somehow pleasant. As somehow something that has to be taken in stride. People who do not deal with the reality of death usually are not able to deal with the reality of life. People who do not accept the pain that death must bring cannot really experience life correctly either. The starkness of death is what gives life its color and its flavor, what drives man forward to accomplish and to be noble. Otherwise, death becomes mundane. It's accepted. The rabbis didn't want it to become accepted. Therefore, the loss of a spouse, God forbid, of children, of siblings, that is unnatural, so to speak. And because of that, people don't accept it that readily. Thirty days of mourning is sufficient, therefore. 
but the death of a parent which is in the nature of the chronology of life a natural thing something that has order and understanding to it and is more easily accepted the rabbis wanted to point out that that also should not be accepted that also has to be dealt with and that the parent has to be memorialized has to be memorialized for the entire year so that one remembers what one's parents meant to them one is able to give honor rabbis say honor your father and your mother even when they are dead we owe them honor we owe them respect again that's a process of putting life into some sort of perspective as being able to see things in a Jewish point of view now the danger regarding the temple also Jews become comfortable in the exile it's natural right With 2,000 years without the temple eh? nobody's knocking themselves out to rebuild the temple we're 2,000 years without our own homeland without our own country Jews became accustomed to that also during it is uh, ironic to note that during the time when the question of the Jewish state in the 1940s was on the agenda many many great and assimilated Jews spoke against it because they were comfortable in the United States or they were comfortable in England or they were comfortable wherever they were they did not want to become discomfited by this new intrusion of the Jewish people on the scene and therefore the first step of the three weeks is to remind us that it's not natural for the Jewish people to be without its homeland it's not accepted for the Jewish people to be without a temple in Jerusalem that we have lost something and that even though we are able to live and survive and prosper and achieve in spite of the loss we recognize it as a loss we want to redress the loss we want to regain what we once had we are not happy nor are we committed to a life that does not include Zion and Jerusalem that does not include a Jewish state that does not include the temple in Jerusalem that does not include all the blessings that the Lord our God bestowed upon that land and set aside for us as his people to enjoy therein another reason why the period of mourning for parents is 12 months and for others is only 30 days is because the intensity of grief God forbid for the loss of siblings of children of a spouse is of such a nature that it never heals there never is a moment when the pain disappears it is sublimated it changes but it's always there I once heard from a great rabbi who said that when he came from the funeral of his wife he said 
It is not that I buried my wife on the cemetery. But that a piece of me was buried there as well. When it comes to parents, again, no matter how deep the pain is, not only does one get over it, one is able to adjust to it in a different fashion completely. And in order to emphasize, again, that role of parents, because parents are not a piece of me, I'm a piece of them. That's a great difference. But in order to emphasize that relationship, in order to structure and build a life that has correct meaning and values, the rabbis ordained this 12-month period of mourning as a constant reminder as to the continuity and flow of life and of generations. The temple in Jerusalem also was meant to do that. It pointed out the continuous nature of God's relationship with the Jewish people. As long as the temple was in Jerusalem, the Jews had no doubt as to their Creator's interest in them and as to the divine intervention which has always been part of Jewish existence and Jewish experience. Now that that is gone, the halacha bids us remember it, observe the absence of it. And the only way that that observance can take place, the only way that remembrance can take place, is through halachic prohibitions. The second stage, which is that of shloshim, is called, according to Ashkenazic Jewry, the nine days, which means from Mashkodesh Ov, from the first of Av until after Tishabov, and the Svardim following the custom of the Talmud commemorated as the week in which Tishabov falls. During this period of time, just as during Shloshim, there are greater restraints upon our behavior, our diet changes. We don't eat meat, we don't drink wine. Our uh, personal habits also are altered. We don't bathe in the same fashion that we do all year round. We are limited in personal matters, not only in social and entertainment matters. And this intensification of grief comes to bring home to us, I feel, the problems that exist in the present-day Jewish world, problems that after so many centuries and after so many millennia have never disappeared. The problems from the outside and the problems from the inside. The nature of hatred of the Jewish people, the nature of anti-Semitism, which is a word that was coined in the 19th century, which according to the words of the rabbis has existed from the moment of Sinai onward, is the most perplexing of all human phenomena. What does the world want from us? 
why are we so victimized? This small people that has contributed so much to the benefit of mankind has always found itself on the brink of annihilation, has always found itself frightened, alone, challenged, persecuted, and ready for destruction. How to counteract this type of world? How to live in it? How to be able to deal with unremitting hatred? That is the problem of the nine days. The halachic prohibitions of the nine days bring to us a sense of urgency, bring to us a sense of reality. The Kotzker once said in one of his great aphorisms, that there really are no fast days in the Jewish calendar, no days of fasting. His words were, on Yom Kippur, there will essen, on Tisha B'Av, there can essen. On Yom Kippur, who wants to eat? One is so consumed by the spirituality of the day. On Tisha B'Av, who can eat? One is so consumed by the tragedy, by the sadness by the realization of our condition that there is no room for appetite there is no room for food in our time when anti-semitism has taken a toll unimagined in all of Jewish history we know how precarious our situation is we know what can happen we have seen it happen does anyone harbor any illusions as to what type of treatment Syrians, the PLO, the other enemies of Israel today would give to us if they had the ability to control our destiny. Hitler and Stalin proved that you can do whatever you want. Chairman Mao, all of the great leaders of our century, with rare exceptions, have been bloodthirsty killers. In the 20th century has seen more human life destroyed than all of the other centuries of human experience combined. It's a frightening world. And there are no rules, and there is no conscience, and there really is no defense against it. This overriding problem serves as the focal point, I feel, of all Jewish debate. Some Jews say, well, let us arm ourselves never again. We will not allow it to happen. Would that be? I pray that such a solution would be a valid one. But in my heart's heart, I doubt it. There are not enough Uzis in the world. There is simply not enough Jewish manpower, Jewish firepower to destroy all of our enemies. It is only the divine intercession that prevents the concentration of enmity against us from functioning efficiently that has preserved us until today. But we will be unable to match the world gun for gun, bullet for bullet, and because of that, therefore, we are in dire straits. Many Jews, therefore, give up. They leave. They assimilate. 
think an unconscious but powerful motivation in assimilation would simply be the danger of being Jewish and there comes a period of, in one's life when one says it's not worth it anymore I always re- recall the story of a young man that came to my yeshiva he was an emigre from the Soviet Union and he was brought to our yeshiva and uh, the father wanted that the child should be registered in the yeshiva he wanted him to have a primarily a good English education and he was willing to allow the Hebrew education to occur as well this young boy who then was 14 was not circumcised because as is true of most Russian Jews circumcision was banned in Russia liberal progressive peace loving government felt that it was a barbaric act the same non-barbaric people who sent a hundred million people to the gulag and to Siberia so he was not circumcised I spoke with the father and I told him that before the son comes to the yeshiva he should make certain that they contact one of the number of organizations religious organizations that deal with Russian immigrants and to see to it that the bris, the circumcision, takes place. The father told me that he didn't feel that he wanted that his child should be circumcised. I said, well, I I don't understand why. He said, well, I'll tell you why. He said, my father told me that when the Nazis came, to their village in Russia in the Second World War every male that was circumcised was shot even those that were not Jewish and that it was the indelible mark of identification for Jewish males anyone that was circumcised was killed he said well what if the Nazis come again what if somebody else comes again why should I subject my child to such dangers I had never thought of it in that fashion and I really didn't have a good answer to give him at that moment and he left two weeks later he called me and he said that he wants to enroll his son and he told me you'll be happy to know that my son has been circumcised and not only that he said I also was circumcised I was delighted at the news that I asked him what caused you to change your mind he said well I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it and I said if I'm sending him to yeshiva he said I want to circumcise him so that when they come to take him he'll at least know why he's being taken when they come to kill him realize what it's all about many therefore opt out they don't want to be circumcised because they don't want to be taken that's understandable but it's not justifiable the Jewish people have preserved their courage in the face of unremitting enmity 
and the nine days come to point out to us that that enmity has not disappeared that even though it changes its form on a regular basis the inherent problem still exists it has not changed and therefore it's not a world of meat and wine it's not a world of joy and happiness for us it's a world of problems bitter, bitter problems to the extent that we can mitigate whatever anti-Semitism exists in our society we should certainly do so but we have to understand that in the grander aspect of the situation there really is very little that we can do and that we are subject to the terrors of that terrible, terrible disease the nine days also remind us of an internal problem one that has also not changed over long long centuries our rabbis tell us that the nine days that the destruction of the temple that Tishabov at least in terms of the second temple was a product of hatred intolerance bigotry between Jew and Jew the words of the rabbis are that the Churban came about because of Sina Sina. Hatred for no reason. Jewish people are by nature a fractious and divided people. That's not always bad. Every Jew wants to do his own thing. And we have therefore a great many Jewish organizations a great many Jewish educational institutions, a great many synagogues. The nature of the Jewish people is to be disunited. That creates a ferment of competition. It creates a freshness of ideas. It has a place but unfortunately it also creates a climate of hatred climate that I'm the only one that's right not only are you wrong but I despise you for being different I want you to conform to me if you don't conform then you're doomed to destruction that hatred is still present amongst us Jews are such a wise people that it's difficult to understand how we have not progressed further in attempting to solve this problem perhaps it is our nature of disunity that leads to our nature of self-hatred to the nature of despising other Jews to the nature of being intolerant to the nature of being smug and self-righteous and condescending and causing therefore pain and grief to others 
Shinas Chinam has not departed from the Jewish scene. On other occasions I have spoken about the problems of fanaticism and of intolerance, of extremism, the personal hurts and hates, the terrible climate that is that is created in certain Jewish circles. In almost all Jewish circles, I know no camp that is really free of the disease. As long as Jews think that way about each other, as long as Jews are unable to deal with other Jews with equality and respect, with sensitivity, with love and compassion, and again, the rabbi said, it's not a time for wine and meat. It's not the time. The hurt is too great. The tear, the wound is too fresh. Because what happened 2,000 years ago in the destruction of the Second Temple is happening today. Nothing has changed. If nothing has changed, we don't commemorate an historic event that occurred long ago. But we recognize a current problem that requires our immediate attention. It is a festering sore on the body of the Jewish people. Now, there's a lot of lip service that is paid for unity, for all sorts of gestures of amity between Jews. I don't come to decry any of that. But certainly what is required is a basic change of attitude. And that change of attitude must be within the person himself. The nine days come to change our attitude. Change our attitude towards life, change our attitude towards other Jews, to make us appreciate how real the dangers are, how strong the problems are, and how current the commemoration of a destruction that occurred so long ago really is. We're not talking only about the destruction of the temple. We're talking about our own self-destruction today. We have to do something about it. Otherwise it will come and it will overcome us, overwhelm us, it will mock our efforts, it will undo all of our achievements, it will leave us again, God forbid, in a state of destruction and depression and in a state of hopelessness. The day of Tishabov itself, so to speak, is the culmination of our grief. The day of Tishabov, the ninth day of Av, is a sad day on the Jewish calendar, and it has been a sad day on the Jewish calendar, almost from the dawn of our history. Our rabbis tell us that it was the ninth day of Av, on the night of the ninth day of Av, that the Jewish people mourned when they learned of the report of the spies and of the negative things that they said regarding the land of Israel and that the heavenly voice commented tonight you mourn for no reason but on this night over the long centuries of Jewish history you will mourn on this night for very good cause 
first temple was destroyed on the ninth day of Av. The second temple, the destruction began on the ninth day of Av, even though the main fire and destruction was on the tenth day of Av. Our rabbis combined the commemoration of both destructions on the ninth day of Av. Though there are opinions in the Talmud that the commemoration of the destruction of the second temple is of such a nature that it should have been extended to the tenth day as well. Certain commemorations are extended to the tenth day. It is not till after noon of the tenth day that... We'll get to Rabbi Wine's conclusion regarding the ninth and tenth of Av. In fact, we'll actually start from Tisha B'Av. Uh, from an earlier part in the lecture in just a few minutes here at JM in the AM. Hour number one this morning on a Monday era of Tisha B'Av dedicated to Ibero Wine's presentation about the three weeks. We'll get to its conclusion coming up here at JM in the AM. It is the 15th of July, the 8th of Menachem Av. We are getting ready for tonight's fast day, the uh, 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av, as a day of fasting and of um, a special services begins tonight. In the Eastern Time Zone, or I should say better, in the uh, New Jersey, New York area. Uh, sunset just after 825, so that's when the fast will begin. In fact, I think I saw some uh, official sunset readings at exactly 825, so I should be careful how I say that. And um, tonight is uh, Eicha and uh, Kinnis. Tomorrow, of course, is Shacharis and Kinnis. We will have a Kinnis service tomorrow morning right here at JM in the AM. Herbie Goldwasser will join me for that. Uh, we have appropriate programming throughout the day on jmnam.org tomorrow. We'll explain all that coming up right here at jmnam. And uh, we encourage everybody to keep it on our stream all day long. We'll explain how that's going to work. On a Wednesday morning, we'll present our 10th of Av Shlomo Kalbach Stories program. That's what we normally do with stories of Shlomo Kalbach on the 10th of Av. And in the middle of the day, on Wednesday at 12 noon, uh, Yossi Zweig will transition from an a cappella format uh, to a regular music format as we get set to pursue yet another great Jewish music season here at JM and the AM and jmandtheam.org. It's America's one and only Jewish moments of the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Around the world on the web, jmandtheam.org. Golly, it's on the background. News from Israel coming up, and then we'll continue with our barrel wine on the subject of the three weeks. All happening here at JM in the AM with appropriate programming all through the day. And, uh, of course, tomorrow morning as well, a kinnah service and more here at JM in the AM. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next. WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, JM in the AM.org. גליצה על השעה שתיים, כאן שיבל קרמי מנסור עם מה שקורה עכשיו. שוב מקרה של תינוקת שנשכחה ברכב, כעת נלחמים על חייה. כתבתנו הדס שטייף עם פרטים ראשונים. לפני זמן קצר התקשר אזרח למוקד מאה של המשטרה וסיפר כי הוא מבחין בתינוקת מאולפת ברכב ביישוב זולב של בבני בנימין. כוחות משטרה ומדה הגיעו למקום ומצאו תינוקת כבת שלוש במצב אנוש. הם פרצו למכונית והחלו לבצע בתינוקת פעולות החייאה אך ללא הועיל. במקביל פתחה המשטרה בחקירה וניסיון לאתר את ההורים. ככל הנראה האב הוא זה ששכח את התינוקת במכונית. 
צאטי הלר, דובר מגן דוד אדום, דיבר בתוכניתנו עושים צהריים עם יעל דן. התינוקת שנמצאה ככל הנראה מספר שעות ברכב בחום הזה, כשאנחנו יודעים שברכב סגור בחום כזה הטמפרטורה יכולה להגיע ללמעלה מ-60 מעלות וקשה מאוד להציל בן אדם ובטח תינוק ששוהה ברכב כל כך הרבה זמן ההסתדרות נגד רפורמת הנמלים, עופר עיני, הכריז על סכסוך עבודה בנמלי חיפה ואשדוד אחרי עוד פגישה ללא הבנות בינו לבין ראש הממשלה נתניהו. כתבתנו רויטל איוב שמעה את עורך הדין אבי ניסנקורן, יושב ראש האגף לאיגוד מקצועי בהסתדרות. אנחנו הכרזנו עכשיו, הדלתנו בביצוע 15 ימים. אנחנו עדיין קוראים לממשלה לנות באחריות. לצערנו התבלבלו יוצרות. יש ארגון עובדים אחראי ויש התנהגות חסרת אחריות של הממשלה. שרת יצוא הגז, עתירה שלישית לבג"ץ נגד המתווה, כתבתנו יעל עמית. הארגונים אמון הציבור וישראל יקרה לנו עתרו הבוקר לבג"ץ נגד החלטת הממשלה לייצא גז מישראל עם טיעונים שלא זכו להתייחסות בשתי העתירות שכבר הוגשו, מהם השפעות היצוא על הורדת יוקר המחיה ופיתוח התעשייה בישראל. הארגונים טוענים גם כי העובדה שחברות הגז חתמו על מסמך הבנות עם ממשלת קפריסין להקמת מתקן לייצוא גז על שטח האי, מייתרת את הצורך לאפשר ייצוא בכמויות גדולות מישראל שיצדיק הקמת מתקן כזה בשטח המדינה. אחרי שברוסיה דווח הבוקר שמטוסי חיל האוויר הישראלי יצאו מטורקיה כדי לתקוף בלדקיה שבסוריה, באנקרה אומרים בתגובה, לא היה ולא נברא. כתבתנו נעמה ארטשיק. שר החוץ של טורקיה דאוטולום מכחיש היום את הטענות לפיהן ישראל השתמשה בבסיס צבאי בארצו לשיגור המתקפה נגד מחסן הנשק בסוריה בשבוע שעבר. טורקיה לא הייתה ולא תהיה שותפה למתקפות כאלה, לא קיים מצב שבו ישראל וטורקיה ישתפו פעולה במבצע צבאי, כך אמר דאוטולום לתקשורת הטורקית והוסיף, מי שטוען אחרת מנסה לפגוע בשמה הטוב של טורקיה. בירושלים לא מאשרים ולא מכחישים את דבר התקיפה. מזג האוויר, התחממות קלה, צריכת החשמל בישראל הגיעה בשעה האחרונה ל-9,949 מגוואט, שהם כ-83% מסך יכולת הייצור הכוללת. ולסיום, המנצח לוקח את הכל ויותר מפעם אחת. לזובין מתה כבר יש תואר דוקטור של כבוד מהאוניברסיטה העברית, אוניברסיטת תל אביב, מכון ויצמן, ועכשיו גם מהטכניון. קובי מנדל זה יקרה ביום חמישי הקרוב בקונצרט חגיגי שיערך בהיכל התרבות בתל אביב בהנחיית חתן פרס נובל פרופסור דן שכטמן. התואר יוענק למנצח זובין מתה כהוקרה על תרומתו הייחודית וההיסטורית למוזיקה בעולם בכלל ובישראל בפרט וכהערכה על מסירותו הממושכת למדינת ישראל ולאזרחיה. אלה החדשות שעורך עידו כהן J.M. in the A.M. Monday, that's the um, Galit Sal Israel Army Radio News for the top of the hour, 2 p.m. in Israel, 7 a.m. here on the uh, east coast of the U.S. Fast begins tonight. Tisha B'Av uh, begins this evening. We will go through all the uh, Tisha B'Av programming announcements coming up. First, let's conclude by Beryl Wine's lecture on the three weeks here at J.M. in the A.M. Nine days also remind us of an internal problem one that has also not changed 
over long, long centuries. Our rabbis tell us that the nine days that the destruction of the temple, that Tishabov, at least in terms of the second temple, was a product of hatred, intolerance, bigotry between Jew and Jew. The words of the rabbis are that the Churban came about because of Sinas Chinam. Hatred for no reason. The Jewish people are by nature a fractious and divided people. That's not always bad. Every Jew wants to do his own thing. And we have therefore great many Jewish organizations a great many Jewish educational institutions, a great many synagogues. The nature of the Jewish people is to be disunited. That creates a ferment of competition. It creates a freshness of ideas. It has a place. But unfortunately, it also creates a climate of hatred. Climate that I'm the only one that's right. Not only are you wrong, but I despise you for being different. I want you to conform to me. If you don't conform, then you're doomed to destruction. That hatred is still present amongst us. Jews are such a wise people that it's difficult to understand how we have not progressed further in attempting to solve this problem. Perhaps it is our nature of disunity that leads to our nature of self-hatred to the nature of despising other Jews to the nature of being intolerant to the nature of being smug and self-righteous and condescending and causing therefore pain and grief to others Sinas Chinam has not departed from the Jewish scene On other occasions I have spoken about the problems of fanaticism and of intolerance, of extremism, the personal hurts and hates, and the terrible climate that is, that is created in certain Jewish circles, in almost all Jewish circles. I know no camp that is really free of the disease. As long as Jews think that way about each other, as long as Jews are unable to deal with other Jews with equality and respect, and with sensitivity, with love and compassion. And again, the rabbi said, it's not a time for wine and meat. It's not the time. The hurt is too great. The tear, the wound is too fresh. Because what happened 
2,000 years ago and the destruction of the second temple is happening today. Nothing has changed. If nothing has changed, we don't commemorate an historic event that occurred long ago. But we recognize a current problem that requires our immediate attention. It is a festering sore on the body of the Jewish people. Now there's a lot of lip service that is paid for unity, for all sorts of gestures of amity between Jews. I don't come to decry any of that. But certainly what is required is a basic change of attitude. And that change of attitude must be within the person himself. The nine days come to change our attitude. To change our attitude towards life, change our attitude towards other Jews, to make us appreciate how real the dangers are, how strong the problems are, and how current the commemoration of a destruction that occurred so long ago really is. We're not talking only about the destruction of the temple. We're talking about our own self-destruction today. We have to do something about it. Otherwise it will come and it will overcome us, overwhelm us, it will mock our efforts, it will undo all of our achievements, it will leave us again, God forbid, in a state of destruction and depression and in a state of hopelessness. The day of Tishabov itself, so to speak, is the culmination of our grief. The day of Tishabov, the ninth day of Av, is a sad day on the Jewish calendar, and it has been a sad day on the Jewish calendar, almost from the dawn of our history. Our rabbis tell us that it was the ninth day of Av, on the night of the ninth day of Av, that the Jewish people mourned when they learned of the report of the spies and of the negative things that they said regarding the land of Israel and that the heavenly voice commented tonight you mourn for no reason but on this night over the long centuries of Jewish history you will mourn on this night for very good cause the first temple was destroyed on the ninth day of Av the second temple the destruction began on the ninth day of Av even though the main fire and destruction was on the tenth day of Av our rabbis combined the commemoration of both destructions on the ninth day of Av. Though there are opinions in the Talmud that the commemoration of the destruction of the second temple is of such a nature that it should have been extended to the tenth day as well. Certain commemorations are extended to the tenth day. It is not till after noon of the tenth day that we do laundry, that we eat meat, that we drink wine. That is all in commemoration of the fact that the main destruction of the second temple was on the tenth day of Av. The beginning of its destruction was on the ninth day of Av. The long history of the Jewish people, other events occurred on the ninth day of Av, which were of very great and tragic consequences to the Jewish people. 
The ninth day of Av marked the final day that the Jews of Spain in 1492 were allowed to emigrate. The expulsion from Spain is therefore also part of the commemoration of the day of Tishabov. In more recent times, in the beginning of the first, the spark that set the first world war into motion and the declaration of war itself was on the ninth day of love. The first world war marks the complete dislocation of the Jewish people of Eastern Europe. In effect, in historic retrospect, we could say it was already the beginning of the end of European Jewry. The litany of sadness that occurred on that day is therefore almost without end. On this night shall my children weep. This night is the commemoration of all of the troubles of the Jewish people. And again, because of the fact that it would be impossible for us to commemorate all of those troubles throughout the calendar year, our rabbis and Jewish tradition saw fit, so to speak, to lump all the troubles together on one time. And it became a commemoration for everything. And therefore, in the kinos, in the elegies which are read, in the poems of lamentation which form the basic part of the service of Kino, of Tishabov. There are kinos for the Crusades, even though the Crusades did not happen in the time of Ov, but rather in the Sphira time and the time of Shavuos. There are uh, elegies regarding the burning of the books of the Talmud by King Louis IX in Paris in the 13th century. There are kinos regarding the expulsion of the Jews from England under Richard the Lionhearted. There are kinos that mark each and every one of the terrible tragedies which has occurred to the Jewish people over all of the times of their dispersion and places of their dispersion. Tishabov also marks the debacle of Shabzai Tzvi, the false messiah, who perhaps more than any other person undid the fabric of Jewish life, uh, brought doubt where faith had once reigned supreme, and from whose apostasy uh, much of modern Jewish history can be directly traced. Shabzai Tzvi claimed to have been born on the ninth day of Av, and that was perhaps a necessary invention on his part since he claimed to be the Messiah and he wanted to live up to the prediction which the rabbis mentioned that on the ninth day of Av the Jewish people experienced their destruction of the temples but the ninth day of Av also marks the beginning of the birth of the Messiah. He interpreted that literally and claimed to have been born on Tishabov. So the entire Jewish history speaks to the ninth day of Av as the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. In our time, many people have taken to commemorate the Holocaust on the ninth day of Av with special kinos recited in memory of the six million martyrs of our brethren who passed away so brutally in the 20th century. Nevertheless, the 
main thrust of the ninth day of Av remains the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the beginning of the Jewish exile, and the problems that are created and have been created and continue to exist in Jewish life because of those desperate events. The ninth day of Av also brings with it, as does all events of tragedy in Jewish life, a glimmer of hope, a silver lining. Now rabbis say on the verse, Korah Olai Moed, that the Rabboni Shalom has called this ninth day of Av Moed, a day of holiday, an appointed day. And therefore, even though it's the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, Nevertheless, for instance, we do not recite Tachanun. We do not recite the prayers of supplication on that day because eventually it will be moed. Eventually it will be abolished as a day of sadness and a day of mourning and will take its place as a day of holiday and rejoicing amongst the Jewish people. It's interesting, again, as an historic note, to deal with Shabzai Tzvi that in order to buttress his position as the Messiah so this charlatan abolished Tishabov. this is based upon the story that we read in Treyosar in the book of the Twelve Prophets that the Nevi'im Haggai Shariah Malochi who were present at the rebuilding of the second temple and the return of the Jewish people from the Babylonian exile to Palestine, to the land of Israel, instituted that the ninth day of Av shall no longer be a fast day, and that it shall no longer be a day of mourning. And therefore, Shabzai Tzvi attempted to buttress his claim to be the Messiah by abolishing Tishabov. Well, one can abolish Tishabov, but one cannot abolish the troubles of Tishabov. One cannot acknowledge that the problems that led to Tishabov, the destruction that Tishabov commemorates, all exists. It's real yet. It's part and parcel of the Jewish burden that we bear and of the Jewish past and that do we therefore have to deal with it. And Tishabov, as we sit on the floor, and as we contemplate the enormity of the weight upon us, Tishabov therefore has the ability to assuage our grief slightly. But we look forward again to the fact that Tishabov will be moed. It will be an appointed time of joy and of happiness, of significance and accomplishment that the long and troubled history of the Jewish people has a purpose that all of the sacrifices, all of the blood and pain and tears has not been in vain, will not be wasted Rabboni Shalom in the imagery of the Jewish poets has a vessel, a container in which every human tear, every Jewish tear has been collected Shatosim dimosenu benot cholios God place our tears in your container so that it shall forever exist before you. If every tear is counted, if every tear has a place and is not wasted, certainly every life, every sacrifice, every moment of pain and frustration and grief 
which has been exerted on a noble cause also will not easily disappear also will remain from generation to generation from time to time and therefore our rabbis said truly that those who mourn for Zion on Tisha B'Av and those who appreciate what has been lost, what has been taken from us, will be privileged to see the restoration of Zion and the building of Jerusalem speedily and in our day. This concludes lecture number 610 on the three weeks. J.M. and the A.M. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. A uh, fascinating discussion about the three weeks to open up our Era of Tisha B'Av programming here at J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Wine has been uh, the centerpiece of our nine days spoken word format. If you'd like his lectures, again, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. Getting ready for Tisha B'Av and the official day of mourning for our holy temples. It's Monday, Erev Tisha B'Av. Tomorrow, Kinnis live on JM in the AM. Rabbi Goldwasser will join me. And uh, we'll hopefully make it an inspiring and meaningful morning for you here between 6 and 9 a.m. Our actual Kinnis service will begin about 7.30 tomorrow morning. Right here at JM in the AM. Monday, July 15th, the 8th of Menachem Av, and it is Erev Tisha B'Av with 80 degrees, 75% humidity, winds are west at 7, and we have heat advisories all over the place for the entire week. Even after Tisha B'Av, you would think that the heat advisories would last until Tisha B'Av, until the fast, but in this case, it's going to be with us after the fast as well. Partly cloudy today with a high temperature of 94, partly cloudy tonight, low 77. Tomorrow, sunshine. High temperature, 94 degrees. Yerushalayim is at 88, Tel Aviv at 84, Haifa at 86, and Eilat at 99. Up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Masora are getting ready for the traditional Lael Tishabov program tonight. They have 70 degrees going up to 89. We hope to see everybody on visiting day this coming Sunday. Lots of camps have visiting day this Sunday. Hope everybody finds your children happy, healthy, and having a wonderful summer. Tishabov program in Brooklyn, New York begins tonight with Mariv at 9.05. At 10 p.m., Rabbi Ozer Alport on Kinnis and Why We Cry on Tishabov. Tuesday morning, Shachris and Kinnis start at 8 a.m. Rabbi Ephraim Levine will do the Kinnis explanation. And then Rabbi Shmuel Yaakov Klein, Rabbi Baruch Abinowitz, Rabbi Baruch Hilzenrath, Rabbi Moshe Tovyalif, Rabbi Shmuel Dishon, Rabbi Avraham Reisman, um, Rabbi Fischel Schachter, all will be participating. It's at the Yeshiva of Brooklyn in the Boys Building at 1200 Ocean Parkway. Um, oh, and Rabbi Jonathan Rietti. That is who uh, belongs in that slot. Uh, they'll all be participating in Yeshiva of Brooklyn tonight, starting at 9.05, tomorrow morning from 8 in the morning until Mariv at 9.05. Yeshiva of Brooklyn is 1200 Ocean Parkway, 718-998-5822, 718-998-5822. Go to the uh, following email address, TorahConnections at Yahoo.com, TorahConnections at Yahoo.com. I remind you that the OU's presentation of Kinnis uh, will be uh, presented on the OU website, of course, 
and that's OU.org. In addition, we will have it right here at jmandtheam.org, starting a little bit after 9 a.m. Eastern Time, after JM and the AM, and going all the way until 7 p.m. Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib will be featured, and we'll play as much of their presentations as possible over that 10-hour span. It'll certainly help make your Tisha B'Av more meaningful. That's the goal. And I believe that that goal will be achieved. Uh, so make sure to be tuned in uh, all day long at any point uh, to those presentations. We'll have it for you at jmandtheam.org, as I mentioned. Uh, also, at 7 p.m. tomorrow night, a presentation that will uh, inspire you. It's being presented by Project Inspire. It's called Just a Word, Harnessing Our Power to Bring Back and Rebuild Klai Yisrael. It's a feature film presentation, which will be in many, many different locations. You can see it on Kiruv.com. That's Kiruv.com. And it is being uh, uh, presented by Kiruv.com with an introduction by David Weinberger and a 50-minute film presentation and dynamic presentation by Charlie Harari. Now, what they have done, Project Inspire, in addition to this segment entitled Just a Word, which will be shown in many different places, and which you can see on the web at Kiruv.com, in addition, they have announced that at 7.15 tomorrow night Eastern Time, Charlie Harari will be live in New York City, and on many websites and on the radio at 6.20 on the AM dial, he will be concluding Tishabov with everybody. Uh, trying to wrap up the fast day on as positive and upbeat a note as possible, talking about uh, people who have made a difference and have made a uh, a commitment toward goodness on Tisha B'Av. That is all happening tomorrow night. It'll be the final two hours before the end of the fast. You can catch it at 6.20 on the AM dial. You can catch it on our web stream. You can catch it on a whole bunch of websites. Uh, Charlie Harari will be live uh, to discuss goodness and an important message for the end of the fast. The end of the fast, when it's always so difficult for people to really be inspired, here we have an opportunity uh, to spend a couple of hours and be inspired by Charlie Harari. So check that out. That's going to be on our stream uh, tomorrow night, just after 7 p.m. Eastern Time. It'll be on many different websites. It'll be at 6.20 on the AM dial on the radio. Charlie Harari will be wrapping up Tishabov in a very upbeat fashion, believe it or not. Uh, and we strongly and highly recommend it. A, a reminder that the Tishabov prayer service at the United Nations will focus on dangers facing Israel and Jewish communities worldwide. Rabbi Avi Weiss will preside over our Mincha service tomorrow at 2 p.m. Please bring your talis and tefillin. Uh, will David Mincha at the Isaiah Wall opposite the UN, 1st Avenue and 43rd Street. Special speaker from Israel will be Naftali Moses of Efrat, father of, Aver- of Avraham David, who was among the students murdered by terrorists in Merkaz Harav in 2008. And um, that is all happening tomorrow at the uh, Isaiah Wall across from the United Nations, 1st Avenue at 43rd Street in New York City. Please be there. And um, I was informed by Glenn Richter early this morning that uh, one of the benefits of the current construction at the Isaiah Peace Wall is that the, uh, the scaffolding, the overhang construction, 
provides shade for us. It's supposed to be a hot day tomorrow. Uh, many people are wondering if the sun will be beating on us. And again, the construction uh, scaffolding will provide shade, so at least we have that. Try your best to be there and to join us for a um, very inspiring Mincha service. It is like that every single year, and we are looking forward to participating. So plenty going on tomorrow. Lots of it, thank goodness, I'm proud to say. Uh, part of jmnam.org in our live stream. Uh, I want to commend the OU. We're going to be presenting uh, uh, amazing uh, presentations all through Tisha B'Av Day, and we'll be carrying that as well. And, of course, I want to uh, commend Charlie Harari, who's going to be on the radio, and we will be uh, carrying that as well, starting at about uh, 7, 7.15 tomorrow night on our stream at jmnam.org. 7.30 in the morning for Rabbi Goldwasser, who's going to be joining me tomorrow morning for Kinnis service, starting at this time at 7.30. Join us for a live Kinnis service on the radio right here at JM and the AM. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. The Novi Yermio notes, the Kohanim did not say, Aye Hashem, where is Hashem? Our Chachomim ask, what did the Navi mean when he made this statement? After all, we know that Hashem is everywhere. Moreover, why was there specific criticism that was voiced against the Kahanim concerning this omission? The Talmud in Yuma relates that during the last 40 years before the Chorban Beis Hamikdash, the destruction of the Holy Temple, there were certain phenomena which up until that time had been in effect. However, it no longer took place. The large heavy doors of the Hechel, which up until then had miraculously swung open of their own accord in the morning and then it closed in the evening, they no longer did so. The Ner Maravi no longer remained lit throughout the entire night until the next day. The red thread no longer turned white. And lastly, the Garol Hashem, the lot for Hashem, did not come up in the right hand of the Kohen Gadol, but rather in the left. Up until that time, the lot for Hashem always came up in the right. The great Goin, Rav Yosef David, cites this particular Pasuk and notes that the Kohen Gadol should have contemplated what was the reason for this occurrence. The Kohen Gadol should have questioned, Aye Hashem, where is the lot of Hashem that used to be drawn in the right hand? We know that the left hand represents the attribute of din, strict justice. The right is the attribute of loving mercy, rachamim. Yet, Klal Yisrael didn't heed the sign. They didn't reflect upon the deterioration of the relationship with their Father in Heaven. This was obviously indicative of the general spiritual decline. This ultimately led to the destruction of the Beis Amikdosh. Similarly, in our days, when we observe the various distressing situations and the events throughout the world, we should be asking, Aye Hashem, where is the glory of Hashem? Where is our destiny that should be coming up in the right hand on the side of loving kindness? Why is it that at times our lot is switched to the left hand, the one of Din? The Chovetz Chaim once informed a group of people that he was offering a large sum of money to anyone that could find a poor person that was so impoverished 
that he didn't even have a chair to sit on. Eagerly, an entire group went throughout the town, each one hoping that he would be the recipient of the reward. After a few days of intense searching, the people returned to the Chavetz Chaim. They reported that although they had met many very poor people, they could not find even one person who didn't have a chair. The Chavetz Chaim sadly noted, You should know that Hashem is poorer than all of the indigent people in the world. For Hashem doesn't even have a chair that's intact. The chair of Hashem is not whole. During this time of introspection, we should remember each and every day to ask with great love and respect, Aye Hashem. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you Morning Chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. My thanks to Rabbi Goldwasser. Tomorrow morning he will uh, be with us for our Kindness service live on J.M. in the A.M. Uh, always a uh, much appreciated segment here at J.M. in the A.M. Uh, Rabbi Barrel Wines lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. We move now to our Barrel Wines uh, discussion on an overview of Kinnis. We'll say Kinnis tonight after Eicha. We'll say Kinnis tomorrow morning, of course. Many of us together here at JM and the AM will be tuned in. Um, here is the overview of Kinnis at JM in the AM. Today and tomorrow I'm going to uh, discuss with you the uh, keynote, the uh Poetry, the elegies that are said on uh, Tisha B'Av. So today I want to give you a general uh, understanding and who the authors are. And tomorrow we will uh, spend some time on the actual keynote themselves. Uh, the original keynote is naturally the Book of Eicha, of which uh, the Novi Yirmiyahu uh, composed. And the word kina is found in the Navi, in Yermio. And the kina was a form of mourning. It was accepted in the ancient world and in, uh, even in the medieval world that there were professional mourners. That the family, uh, God forbid, a, a funeral took place, would hire professional mourners. Usually women that would come and weep. And uh, in so doing, they would inspire others uh, to that emotion as well. The Novi says, Kiru lam Call the weepers. Call in the professional mourners. So to us, that's a little bizarre, because we're not into weeping that much anyway. In the Western world, it is no longer macho to weep. Therefore, uh, uh, these events, uh, such as a funeral, God forbid, are oftentimes very sterile, unemotional. Let's get it over with. But uh, in the uh, ancient world, and I mentioned to you, even in the medieval world, it was uh, it was an event, not just an event for the family that was directly involved but it was an event for everyone. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, this was an honored profession uh, 
to be a professional uh, weeper. Later in Jewish life, there were professional eulogy sayers who would uh, be maspid, who would say the hespid. And that was their uh, forte, so to speak. And there's an entire literature of hespading, of uh, eulogies. Now again, in it has changed so in this world that uh, I barely recognize but for instance in my youth uh, if there was a funeral God forbid no member of the family would get up to speak the ones that spoke were always outside the family rabbis teachers uh, communal people but it was unheard of that, for instance, a son or a daughter uh, should speak at a funeral regarding a deceased parent. Uh, but that has uh, turned around 180 degrees today uh, where it's uh, de rigueur, it's the accepted practice. Uh, so in these matters, uh, things change. So what was once bizarre, uh, or rather what was once normal, may appear to us today to be bizarre, and what we think is normal would perhaps appear to be bizarre to them. So you had uh, these uh, people that said keynote. Now, the uh, in the Jewish life, the expression of poetry... Uh, found an outlet basically in religious life, though there was an outlet in secular poetry as well. And uh, in uh, two areas uh, was uh, poetry uh, emphasized. One was the keynote that we're going to discuss uh, that has to do with Tisha B'Av, and the other has to do with ritual poetry, such as slichot, which exist before the Yom Noraim, or prayers in the middle of the prayer service, which were called Yotzrot. And uh, I'll, I'll try and discuss a little of that as well. But that's where poetry was concentrated. And uh, in, during the Golden Age of Spain, so then there was a great deal of secular poetry also uh, written by great men and because it was the spirit of the times the Spanish world that they lived in was a world of poems and uh, for instance if you went to visit somebody so today we bring a bottle of wine or uh, candy or something then they brought a poem and uh, if you went to a funeral, God forbid, so then you brought a poem, which was a eulogy, or to the house of the person who was mourning. And uh, everybody tried their hand at poetry. Some were very great at it. Uh, we also have a form of poetry that we call Zmirot, that we sing uh, at the Sabbath meals. For instance, there's a great poem uh, 
Yonam Motzabo Manoach, Visham Yanucha Bo Yigie Koach. So that Zemer was written by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, who lived in the 12th century, and to a great extent he is the poet laureate of the Jewish people. But he wrote that poem for a Sheva Brachot on Shabbat between a Kala named, a Chatan named Yonah and a Kala named Menucha. And it's a play on Shabbat and on the Sheva Brachot, right? Yonah, the Choson, found Menucha, found Manoah. And Yonah also means it's the symbol of the Jewish people. And Manoach is the symbol of Shabbat. So it's that play on words. And they, so he gave it as a, per, as a present for the Sheva Brachot. But it became so popular and well accepted that uh, everybody sings it today. So we live in a world that's pretty dry. You know, it's, our world is uh, pretty gray. There's not much of a flash of color to it. But it wasn't always that way in the Jewish world. And uh, poetry was an accepted form of uh, art, creativity. And as I mentioned, uh, almost everybody tried their hand at it. For instance, we have the Slichot from Rashi uh, that we recite, Erev Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Rashi felt impelled somehow to write a poem because of the fact that everybody was writing poems. Uh, the most, uh, the, the earliest uh, poet is uh, a, a man called Rabbi Elozer HaKalir. In fact, over half of the keynote that we're going to recite on Tisha B'Av were written by him. He is the most prolific of the poets. And he wrote, uh, uh, Yotz wrote for uh, uh, every Shabbos of the year, every Shabbat of the year, every Parsha, and for every holiday. We recite many of his poems in our Mahzor for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The structure of the poem is as follows. The structure of how it is. It's called Yotz Rote, but because uh, the first place where they introduced, I think, because it's a question in halakha, whether you can say a poem in the middle of davening, right? Whether or not that's a hefzik. Today, because uh, of the opposition of the Gol and the Vilna, mainly, to the introduction of poems in the middle of davening, so the the audience for uh, poetry in the middle of davening has been diminished. But there was a time in the Jewish world where everybody said Yotzot and everybody said the Piyutim and the, you know, the more the merrier. And especially on Yom Kippur when you had nothing to do all day. So then they put in all the poems that they could. So uh, it's called Yotzot because it was introduced in the Brocha of Baruch HaToh Hashem Elokeinu Melech Olam so after that brocha, they inserted poems. So those poems were called the Yotzrot after the word Yotzer. 
Then there were poems that were called Zulat, because of the fact that they were introduced in the middle of the Kedusha, Kodosh, Kodosh, Kodosh. Uh, then there were poems that were called uh, Geula, because they were introduced in the middle of the Bracha, Goal Yisrael. And then in the repetition of the Shemona we had things that were called Krovot, the near poems, which were right in the beginning, and then poems in Kedusha. So today they're almost universally, no one recites poems in Kedusha anymore. But uh, if you have an old Mazar, uh, old European Mazar to look at, you'll see that there are long passages to be said uh, in, uh, in the, the middle of Kedusha, poems that were recited. Uh, so that became common, that became that accepted, and uh, the poems were uh, religious in nature. As I mentioned, Rabbi Lozara Kalir is the most prolific of all of them. There was another Babylonian poet by the name of Yanai, Piyuta uh, Yanai, the poems of Yanai, uh, but uh, those poems are only recited in certain communities in the world. They never achieved the popularity that Revelazar Akalir did. Now, who is Revelazar Akalir? So, like all things in the Jewish world, there are different opinions. Tosfus mentions that Revelazar Akalir was the Tano Revelazar Rabshimen, the son of Rabshim ben Yochoi, which would uh, date him very early, date him back to. Uh, uh, the second century before the com- at the second century after the common era and also would give him a stature of being a Tana however uh, most of the other uh, uh, scholars and commentators uh, say that uh, Revelosa Kalir is not the Tana Revelosa Rebbeinah but rather he is a uh, Babylonian or Balkan Jew uh, who lived in probably the 7th or 8th century and wrote those poems. Now, Revelazar Akalir takes great liberty with the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language, as you know, is a very sparse language. It has a very small base of vocabulary. That's why, for instance, in modern Hebrew, we have to import so many words. Because the language is in uh, English, for instance, is an enormously rich language in terms of words and synonyms. But Hebrew is very tight, very small based. So what he did is he took nouns and he uh, made them into verbs. He took verbs and made them into nouns. He has a famous statement of one of his poems, Admon Kibot. Now that's a, we say that on Yom Kippur, this poem. Admon, the red one, meaning Esau, Kibot, when he looked, when he looked to see Yaakov's family and his wives and his children attempted to give them the evil eye, so to speak. Now, so the Admon is an invention of his. Bot is certainly an invention of his. No evil word, bot. But because of the poetic structure, he 
keep the meter, to keep the rhyme. So he took liberties with the language. Because of the fact that he took liberties with the language, uh, Rabbeinu Avrom Ibn Ezra, who was a poet in his own right, uh, and a critic, in his commentary to Kohelis, towards the end of the uh, fourth chapter, beginning of the fifth chapter, or maybe it's towards the end of the fifth chapter, he takes on Rebbe Kalir head on. And he says, uh, really, uh, very negative things about his poetry. How he took those liberties with the old language. But uh, history voted for Rebbe Kalir. Jewish people took his poems and inserted them everywhere in their ritual service. And uh, therefore, in the book of Kinot, which has, I think, 52 poems, there are 27 or 28 are from him. The first 21 in a row are his. And the style of the uh, poems uh, is to take verses from the book of Eicha itself and to build a poem. In other words, the verse becomes the refrain in the poem. Now, Rebbe Kalir was a master of uh, knowing uh, Talmud and Midrash. So therefore, you have to be a London to be able to figure out his poem. And it's not easy to do so. And in fact, uh, there are certain riddles in his poems that have remained unsolved until today. Just as there is a famous riddle, that's another thing that was in the Jewish world, is that people wrote riddles. And you have to figure it out. So there's a riddle in the introduction of the Ebenezer to Humish Bracious uh, that for uh, the last thousand years almost people are trying to figure out what the answer to the riddle is and no one has ever come up with the answer yet. It's like that math problem. What, there's a famous math problem for which no one... There's a prize of millions of dollars if you can figure out the... There's more money if you can figure out where Saddam Hussein is but the... Uh, but there is a prize for uh, for solving this math problem. So there are riddles, uh, you know. So again, it looks to us bizarre. I mean, in the, you know, none of uh, none of our scholars today uh, occupy themselves with such things. But again, in the Middle Ages and the pre-Middle Ages, uh, this was common. It was intellectual exercise. It was the spirit of the times. And the Jews always were swayed by whatever the spirit of the times was, at least culturally. So you have here this bulk of Kinos of Rebbe Lozer HaKalir. The bulk of Kinos is built upon uh, the book of Eicha. And almost every Kino uses uh, a verse from Eicha as being a uh, refrain, a base for uh, for the poetry that follows. 
Now, what's interesting in the keynote uh, for, is that uh, the expression of sorrow uh, is always uh, intense and personal. It's almost written in first person, second person. It's not something that happened to Jewish people. It's something that happened to me. And that is how the author portrays it. That's how the poet portrays it. Because we all know that uh, we somehow are able to be sanguine about other people's troubles, God forbid. But if God forbid we have troubles, so then we're a little more uh, focused. That's what they say, you know, the difference between minor surgery and major surgery is that if it's you, it's minor surgery, and if it's me, it's major surgery. In the uh, keynote, uh, the day of Tisha has been a sad day for the Jewish people, generally. Uh, The first uh, Tisha was in the desert when they left Egypt. Uh, When the Meraglim came back, the spies came back and gave the negative report regarding the land of Israel. So it says, And that night did the Jewish people weep. They said, Where are you taking us? We're going to die. Our enemies will overwhelm us. It's suicidal for us to go to Israel. He took us out of Egypt to die here in the desert. So they wept. So the Medrash says, the famous Medrash, uh, you weep tonight really for no reason, but I will give you reason throughout history to weep on this night. So uh, the first Tishabov is in the desert. The first temple is destroyed on the ninth of Av. The second temple began burning in the late afternoon of the ninth of Av and burned throughout the tenth of Av. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Yochanan said that I would have decreed to fast on the 10th of all. But that would have been uh, asking too much of the people to have to fast two days consecutively. And since the 9th of all was established already, so we fast on the 9th of all because uh, the beginning of the Churban is the 9th of all. The city of Betar, which was the last stronghold of Bar Kokhba and his rebellion, fell on Tishabov to the Romans in the year 139. And that marked the end of the rebellion. The Romans slaughtered the uh, inhabitants of the city. Uh, so the 9th of all has always been a uh, black letter day on the Jewish calendar. In 1492, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, the last days to leave, fell on the 9th of August. It's interesting, Columbus set, set, set sail, for the, attempted to set sail for the New World on the 9th of August. But he was unable to clear the harbor because of the mass of ships carrying Jews away. So he had to wait till the traffic, the harbor master would would allow him to go. Just as an aside, Columbus's voyage was financed by Jews. Abraham Senor was one of the wealthiest Jews in Spain. So uh, there's an irony in the, in the ninth of all, at least as far as the Jewish people are concerned. 
because when he set sail uh, 511 years ago, uh, no one imagined that continent and the country that he would discover would one day be a haven for the Jewish people in another time of terrible events. Uh, First World War uh, began its hostilities around the 9th of August. Was never a good time for us. Therefore, in the keynote are uh, poems, elegies, weeping about other events than the destruction of the temple itself. There is a, a long poem uh, written about the Crusades, the destruction of the Jewish communities of the spires and worms and mites in 1096 by the first crusade uh, there is a long poem written by the Maram of Rutenberg the mayor of Rutenberg who is the uh, teacher and rebbe of the Rosh of Rameo Osher one of the great men of Ashkenazic Jewry uh, regarding the fact that the uh, King of France, Louis IX, in 1240, uh, burned all of the copies of the Talmud that were extant in France uh, in the courtyard of the Louvre, you know where the new pyramid is today, the new museum of the Louvre. So right there is where all of the uh, books of the Talmud scrolls were gathered and burned that really marked the end of Jewish France and then the Jews were expelled and uh, all the yeshivas closed and they had the balitosis etc and they moved east to Germany and Bohemia and eventually to Poland and the story about the burning of the books uh, is also instructive uh, because it speaks to zealotry which is a very uh, combustible, volatile uh, emotion in the Jewish world. Uh, After the Rambam died, there were those who objected strongly uh, to ideas and works uh, that he had written. And they objected to the Sefer Hamada. WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery. Uh, which is the first section of the Yoda Chazoka, the Mishnah Torah, because of its philosophic, rational bent. And they objected to the things that he said in the morning of Uchim, the guide to the perplexed. And uh, there, were, there raged a cultural war for about 150 years uh, regarding the books of the Rambam. The Rambam's greatest defenders lived in Provence, in southern France, and his greatest detractors lived in Provence. And uh, as unfortunately usually happens, when it comes to matters such as this, banning books, uh, disagreeing with people, calling other people an apicorus, so things get out of hand not only to get out of hand, then it becomes almost a religious duty to be an idiot. 
And what happened was uh, that uh, certain zealots uh, went to the church and informed the church that the books of the Rambam were strongly anti-Christian. Not only anti-Christian, but that they were uh, insulting and mocking to Christianity. And the church therefore ordered uh, that the books of the Rambam be burned. In Montpellier and other places in Provence. And the zealots rejoiced in the fact that the books were to be burned. But then uh, when the Talmud was burned, uh, not long thereafter, uh, so then many of the rabbis said, you see that in heaven they voted for the Rambam. And in effect, uh, once you start to burn books, so uh, you know, once you tell the church that it's, the Jews are happy for you to burn their books, so then they burn other books too. Who's going to draw the line? famous story about the great Rabbeinu Yonah Ibn Gerundi from Girona. So Rabbeinu Yonah originally was one of the strong opponents of the Rambam. And he uh, was a gifted orator. He traveled to many towns and cities in northern Spain and southern France, Provence, and to speak against the Rambam's works. After the books of the Rambam were burned, and after the Talmud was burned, he regretted his behavior. He went back to every city that he spoke in, and he mounted the pulpit and said, I was wrong. I should never have done so. And as a further act of penance, he wrote what is one of the great books of Musser philosophy, uh, Jewish uh, thought, called Shari Tshuva, the Gates of Repentance. So uh, that whole uh, incident in Jewish history, it's an incident that covers almost 150 years and involves a lot of great men. The, the Ramban, for instance, was the Rambam's great defender. The Ritva was the Rambam's great defender. But uh, there were great men on the other side too. The Adrama, Rabmeir Aladi Abulakia, was a strong critic of the Rambam. The Rambam himself expected it to happen. He writes in his he writes a letter in which he says that he, I have no doubt that all of this will be controversial and that the people will call me all sorts of names, etc. But he said when it all will settle down after a generation or two. He says it so uh, strongly. He says when the jealousies and pettinesses will disappear, because they'll all be dead. So he said, then history will judge me. Judge my works. And he uh, certainly hit the nail on the head. And history has certainly voted for the Rambo. So we have this Kina of the mayor of Rottenburg, it begins, Shali Sunfoboesh, you are burned in the fire. So yeah, many people think that it refers to the temple that was burned in the fire. He's not talking about the temple. That wasn't written. It was written about the Torah that was written 
the, the books of the Balitosvis, all the scrolls of the Talmud that were burned. So you have a kino for that also. In the Sephardic set of keynote, we have keynote for the expulsion from Spain, which uh, probably until the Holocaust was the most traumatic event in the history of the Jewish people, the exile. Jews were in Spain from the 600s, so they were there 800 years. Not only the Jews were there, they were they were the country. I mean, they were the commerce and the government and the poetry and the, 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 the culture, everything. You couldn't think that there would be a Spain without Jews. And the Jews were Spanish to the core. You know, so if you live in a place for 800 years, you think you're going to live there forever, right? But apparently nothing is forever. Jews lived in Poland for 800 years also, and that also didn't last. And what we were in North America about 150 years, so it's young yet. Even though the Jews in America are convinced that it's also forever. Things got a call from the uh, certain community, which I will not name, uh, that they're celebrating their centennial, 100 years in the country. And they're having a big celebration. They invited me to come to be one of the speakers for their uh, events. And then uh, the man ruefully said, you better come this time because I don't know if a hundred years from now there will be another one. So there is uh, a certain sensation of the fact that it may not be forever. But the Jews were in Spain. It was going to be forever. And then they were driven out. So there, in the Sephardic uh, keynote, uh, that exists. We have, uh, there was a great Spanish Jewish poet by the name of Rav Shlomo Ibn Gabiro. Shlomo Ibn Gabiro, so we have keynote from him, but the Sephardim had many from him. He was enormously prolific. He also wrote a great deal of secular poetry. Uh, and uh, he wrote a poem that's called Keter Malchut, the crown of royalty. The poem has uh, 99 stanzas to it. It's magnificent in its praise of God. The entire poem is devoted to how a person should serve God. The Sephardim read that poem on the night of Kol Nidre as part of the service it's like a little book uh, most of Rav Kook published it as a little book it's just absolutely magnificent and so he has Kinos also Sephardim have many more of his Kinos in their uh, liturgy than the Ashkenazim do, but we have also his poems in our keynote. And then we have the poems of Rabbi Yudah Alevi, whom I mentioned before. So his famous keynote begins, Tzion Alosi Shali Lishom And uh, 
that home was uh, so uh, overwhelming in its beauty and so influential that it spawned the genre of poems that begin seal. And they all attempted to copy his meter and his rhyme and his style. Uh, but uh, in terms of pure genius and poetry, uh, we cannot find an equal to that poem of Tzion, of Ramiro Alevi. And there he has the famous phrase, Ami Chinor Lechol Shirayich, I am the uh, harp upon which all of your songs can be played. And that was taken and inserted in the uh, Hebrew song, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, which was the song of the Six-Day War. Yerushalayim longed his entire life to come to Zion. And he eventually forsook Spain and all of its wealth. He writes, Libi b'Mizrach, ani b'Sof Marav. My heart is in the east, and I'm at the end, all the way in the west of the Mediterranean. And he said, Until my heart and I can come together, how? What kind of life can it be? And Rabbi Alevi comes. Uh, eventually to the land of Israel he leaves his family, he leaves his wealth his position and he comes to the land of Israel what happens to him here is unknown there's a legend that he was killed at the gates of Jerusalem by an Arab horseman it's a legend we don't know what happened to him, we don't know where he's buried here God does certain people a favor that doesn't allow their burial place to be known. Moshe is a prime example of that. Because otherwise they'd be selling Coca-Cola there. Right? Souvenirs. You get a camel ride. You know, for a long time the Jewish people weren't into graves. Today graves is a big business. So where Vira Levi's grave is, where the Ramban's grave is in this country, no one knows. But he died here, and he became the symbol, not only because of his beautiful poetry, his talent, his creativity, uh, but he also became the symbol of the Jewish longing for the land of Israel. That the Jews would never give up on their right to the land of Israel, and the fact that they would eventually gather the exiles and return to the land of Israel they would rebuild themselves in the land of Israel so Rebut Levi became so to speak our spokesman for that one that uh, throughout the ages uh, his song, his poetry reverberated with that idea and in this kina of Tzion Alosishali uh so to speak, everything that can be said about Jewish revival in the land of Israel is said in that poem. Like when you're done with the poem, so there's nothing more to say. Uh, the vision is laid out uh, beautifully, clearly, definitively. And uh, therefore, this poem was more than an elegy, it was an inspiration. 
And in the order of the keynote, therefore, they put it in the uh, last third. It begins the last third of the recitation of the keynote because at, at the end, so to speak, we're looking for an upbeat. Even the keynote, uh, even Echo is not allowed to end on a depressing note. So we repeat the posik again, as we learned last week. God, bring us back again. So the keynotes also don't end on a downbeat, but they end rather on a note of hope uh, that the Jewish people, uh, both individually and collectively, uh, will yet be privileged to see better days. The form, uh, the book of Kinoth as we have today, was pretty much sealed by the 15th century. So the later troubles are not reflected. We have no uh, particular Kinoth, for instance, for the disasters of 1648 and 1649, the pogroms in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Kozak, uh, Ukrainian rebellion which uh, cost hundreds of thousands of Jewish lives. In its time, it was the Holocaust. Relative to population, it was the ratio of the Holocaust. Almost. But we have no, uh, no mention of it in the Kino. Uh, the rabbis made a special fast day in memory of it, the 20th day of Sivan. The 20th day of Sivan in the Middle Ages was a fast day over Jews in the city of Trier uh, that were uh, accused of uh, the blood libel and of desecrating the host. All of the uh, Christian accusations in the Middle Ages and 13 Jews were slaughtered. So they, for 13 Jews, the rabbis declared a fast day. Today, 13 Jews is a small change. There is even one bus. And uh, the the rabbis tacked on to the 20th of Sivan, therefore, the commemoration of the uh, pogroms of Khmelyanitsky, the Ukrainian rebellion, etc. But we have no kina for it. And uh, except for people that read history books, uh, it's unknown, even in the Torah one, which is uh, really a sad note. There was no kino for the First World War, which uh, also uh, took at least a million Jewish lives. First of all, Jews fought on both sides in the armies. Jews fought in the Austrian and the Hungarian army and the German army. And Jews fought in the French army and in the Russian army in the British Army and eventually in the Army of the United States. But aside from that, you had a tremendous dislocation of the Jewish community in Eastern Europe because the war was fought basically in Jewish territory. And uh, so you had refugees, malnutrition, there all the good things that come with war. And then to top it all off, then you had the Communist Revolution. So that was a tremendous disaster. But we have no keynote for that either.
Now regarding the Holocaust, the Shoah, the Second World War, so we have no official keynote. But a number of keynotes have been written. One was written by Rabbi Schwab of the uh, German community in Washington Heights in New York. One was written by the Boba Rebbe in Brooklyn. One was written by the Kloisenberger Rebbe here of Natanya. And there have been a number written by Israeli Rabbonim. And there are certain kihilot, there are certain congregations that recite these keynotes regarding the Shoah. One of the great tragedies of the Shoah is the fact that we have found no effective way to commemorate it. In Jewish life, anything that is not connected with halacha becomes a sterile commemoration. It loses. We're able to commemorate our exodus from Egypt because we have a Seder. We have halacha, you know, and how to run it, and the mitzvot, and everything, so it's alive. But things that are not encompassed in halacha, that have no ritual, so to speak, so then it becomes very difficult to commemorate. So whether standing silent for a minute will preserve the memory of the Shoah, I have my doubts. Though I do stand silent when a siren rings. It's no more than courtesy. But whether that, whether museums or anything else can do it, Books, films, Schindler's List. Those are all attempts somehow to preserve the memory. But we see that memory fades. No shortage of Holocaust deniers. And there's no shortage of Holocaust forgetters. So uh, the absence of you know, an accepted official kinah that would be read by the entire Jewish community and would become part of the book of kinah is certainly felt. That absence is a difficult, difficult thing to deal with because of the fact that uh, therefore we, so to speak, abdicate the matter uh, to all sorts of other commemorations uh, which... uh, may not stand the test of time. The uh, Book of Kinot and the Sefer Eicha, the Megillah of Eicha, have withstood almost uh, 2,000 years of time, which itself is a miracle. I don't know, uh, it's it's part part of the tragedy of the Holocaust is that there was no one left to mourn it. It was so uh, enormous in its dimensions that no one could encompass it. And we will pay the price of the Holocaust for uh, generations and generations because of what we are missing because those people were killed. So that somehow should also be involved in the Kishabov mix of the uh, troubles and travails of the Jewish people.
the keynote the end on a uh, on an optimistic note, as I mentioned before. We get up off the floor. And we say that there will be a better day. In our time we have lived to see a better day. No one would have believed even 60 years ago that the Jewish world could look the way it looks today. That Torah could have been rebuilt as it has been rebuilt. That there could be a Jewish state. That there would be five and a half million Jews living in the land of Israel. Uh, That the Jewish community would be as influential and affluent as it is, thank God. So, uh, it's not been without progress. But it's been a great cost and a great sadness and a great sacrifice. And Tisha B'Av encompassed within it uh, encompasses within it all of those things. What was, what is, and what will be. And if we see it in that sense, so then the recitation of the keynote uh, can have a relevance to us. Uh, far greater than just memorializing what happened uh, over 1900 years ago. J.M. in the A.M. Unbelievable insight from Ray Beryl Wine, especially as the Holocaust relates to, uh, or I stated Tishaba relates to modern day uh, catastrophes like the Holocaust as well. Unbelievable. J.M. in the A.M. on this Monday. It's Erev Tishabov, July the 15th, the eighth day of Menachemov. I thank all of you for joining us here at J.M. in the A.M. Uh, is Erev Tishabah, which means we have plenty of reminders regarding what's going to be happening over the next couple of days. Let me get to some of that right now. I'll remind everybody right off the bat that our JM and AM broadcast tomorrow is going to be um, centered on Kinos and the actual recitation of Kinos. Um, we will be. We will be presenting Kinnah starting at 7.30 in the morning with Rabbi David Goldwasser, as we do every year when uh, Tisha B'Av falls on a Tuesday or Thursday. And um, that will be the uh, bulk or the centerpiece of our programming tomorrow here at JM in the AM. I hope everybody will be tuned in. Many have told us how inspiring, informative, and uh, just how important our Tisha B'Av Kino service is with Rabbi Goldwasser, for, especially for those who have to be at work early in the morning and have no choice or are driving after their own early minion and would like to have a supplement to what has just gone on in their own synagogue or people who are home and are not able to get out of the house. So make sure to be tuned in. We will carry on jmandam.org on the live stream the OU's presentation of Tisha B'Av Morning uh, for 10 hours. From 9 a.m. all the way until 7 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, a combination of Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib as they address their respective audiences in both Florida and Israel. And then at 7 uh, o'clock or just after 7 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow night, we are proud to present Charlie Harari in a live presentation. Project Inspire and Charlie Harari have put together a live presentation. He will be live in studio in New York City uh, heading out to many websites, including ours, jmnam.org, and it will be on the radio at 620 on the AM dial. Uh, Charlie Harari's uh, mission is to end Tishabov on a positive note. 
He's doing a presentation entitled Just a Word, which is going to be shown in many places with an introduction by Rabbi David Weinberger and a presentation including inspirational video clips and a dynamic lecture by Charlie Harari. And in, and you could go to kiruv.com for information about that, kiruv.com. In addition, Project Inspire and Charlie Harari will be live on the radio and live on our stream at jmnam.org starting at 7.15 tomorrow night in an attempt to end Tishabov on an upbeat note and highlight those people that have made positive commitments going forward on this Tishabov 5773. So make sure to catch that. Uh, tomorrow, if you stay with our stream all day tomorrow, you'll have plenty in the background as you work or as you do whatever you need to do tomorrow um, to keep you on a Tisha B'Av theme. We'll continue then our, uh, tomorrow night, we'll continue our quote-unquote nine days format on the stream. Uh, Wednesday morning, stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach, which has become a tenth of Av tradition here at JM in the AM. Stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach on Wednesday morning. Then on Wednesday... At 12 noon Eastern Time, Yossi Zweig will begin a live lunch, and he will slowly transition from a cappella and our uh, three weeks format into a regular music format, which will begin officially at 1 p.m. tomorrow. At 1 p.m. Wednesday, rather. We are looking forward to that. We're going to be up at Camp Hask on Wednesday afternoon. We're actually going to be uh, doing our Jewish music show uh, up at Hask and airing it Thursday morning on this program. We'll remind you about that. As we get closer, and we'll try to send regards to everybody up at Camp Hask from all of our listeners here at JM and the AM. Reminder about tomorrow, Mincha service at the Isaiah Wall begins at 2 p.m. outside the United Nations on 1st Avenue and 43rd Street. <coughs> on 1st Avenue and 43rd Street in New York City. Rabbi Avi Weiss will lead the Mincha service. Bring your talis and tefillin. Again, it's 2 p.m. tomorrow. Isaiah Peace Wall, opposite the United Nations, 1st Avenue and 43rd Street, 2 o'clock. It is going to be pretty hot. As many of you know, we're in the middle of a heat wave. The good news is, for those of us who dive in Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, there is scaffolding. There is scaffolding, which will provide, there's construction going on there, which will provide some shade in this very hot weather. So at least we have that uh, in our favor. A special guest speaker will be Naftali Moses of Efrat. Uh, his son was among the students murdered by terrorists in Merkaz Harav in 2008. Information about the Mincha service tomorrow, 212-663-5784, Tishabov program in Flatbush at the Yeshiva of Brooklyn starts tonight at 9.05 with Mariv, or by Ozer Alpert with uh, Kinnis at 10 p.m. Tomorrow, Shacharis at uh, 8, followed by Kinnis with Rabbi Ephraim Levine, Presentations throughout the day uh, will be given by Shmuel Yaakov Klein, or Baruch Rabinowitz, or Baruch Hilzenrath, or Moshe Tovi or by Shmuel Dishon, or by Avraham Reisman, or by Jonathan Rietti, or by Fischl Schachter. Wrapping up with Mariv tomorrow night. Old Yeshiva of Brooklyn, 1200 Ocean Parkway, corner of Avenue L. And the information at 718-998-5822. So that is the... Um, that's the information about what's going on over the next couple of days, and I certainly hope you'll keep it here at JMNAM and JMNAM.org. Don't forget our Facebook update page has updates, Jewish Radio World with Nachum Siegel, Jewish Radio World with Nachum Siegel, our uh, Twitter feed, at Nachum Siegel Net, at Nachum Siegel Net. You could also um, uh, sign up for our newsletter. If you go to JMNAM.org in the news section, you'll see how to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. 
that will be coming out later this morning. I'll also have information about what's happening on our stream and on the radio all through the week. I want to take this opportunity uh, to wish a Mazel Tov. We got a note from uh, who else but our friends uh, Ira and Cena down in Florida. And they remind us that the last month's mistaken birthdays are the ones that are really happening now. So Mazel Tov and happy birthday going out to Rachelet, a gifter of Staten Island. Celebrated birthday number seven yesterday, and her big sister, Hannah Miriam Gifter, celebrating birthday number 15 today. Mazel to Shoshana and Rabbi Yaakov Gifter and all the siblings. We love you tons, and to prove it, we're getting double birthday announcements thanks to Nahum's generosity. <laughs> yeah, they decided to make these announcements in June, not just July, so now it's a double birthday greeting. Uh, that's love from Bubby and Zadie, Florida, and uh, we say happy birthday from all of us here at JM in the AM. 8.30 in the morning on this Erev Tisha B'Av, we will um, uh, continue and uh, conclude this morning's program with Rai Beryl Wine as he continues on Kinnis, Eicha and Kinnis from Sorrow to Hope. Um, this is uh, a lecture by Rai Beryl Wine from his series. Uh, you can get information at 1-800-499-WEIN. 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com The Jews for the uh, ninth of Tisha B'Av are few in number because the uh, main Tina is the Megillah Recha itself. During the daytime, there is no requirement to read the, the Megillah Recha, but there is a uh, custom that after Kino's uh, people gather together Megillah Recha is read but that's only a custom whereas at night it's uh, an obligation so the main uh, kino of the night is Echa itself therefore there are very few kinos afterwards and so the first kino is Hashem uh, follows the uh, order of the Tzukim in Echa and uh, what it does is uh, uh, acknowledges the uh, sins of the Jewish people which led to the Yichurba. Now, I want to uh, see here at the fifth keynote, Hey, which is from Shlomo Ibn Gabiro, whom I mentioned yesterday. And this keynote is built upon a, uh, an imaginary dialogue between the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and between the kingdom of Yehuda, the southern kingdom. Now, if you uh, look at the Kina, you will see uh, how the rhyme is followed and the meter is followed. Now, the entire trick in poetry, in this type of poetry, is not to notice that the person is bound to the rhyme not to notice that he's bound to the meter. In other words, that it should not be stilted. And so here, uh, the the northern kingdom says uh, that uh, it was taken into captivity and has never returned. The ten tribes have been scattered. And uh, to a great extent, the, the ten tribes have not survived as tribes it says Shnosai Orchu Lo Orchu Shonai your years have been long right to, to 
the exile of Judah has lasted for thousands of years, but the uh, descendants are still here. But my years have not been long. Now, there's, uh, it, it touches upon the question of what happened to the ten tribes, which is a, uh, really one of the great mysteries. Most uh, of the uh, commentators agree that somehow members of the ten tribes uh, came south into Judah and assimilated with the rest of the Jews so that there are Jews within the Jewish people today that are from every tribe. However, there's a uh, romantic legend that exists in the Jewish world that the ten tribes were taken away into exile as a whole and that they exist behind a river somewhere in the world. The river is called the Sambation, and that this is a magical river uh, that uh, is uh, during the six days of the week it spews uh, sulfuric acid and uh, bricks and fire so that no one can cross the river. And on Shabbat it rests. And because of that, therefore, the ten tribes never have a chance to come because of the fact that uh, the river blocks them. And this legend uh, took hold within the Jewish people, so especially at a time when uh, there were uncharted places in the world. And it would be uh, possible to believe that there are corners of the world where people are hidden away. And uh, during the Middle Ages, there were people who came and said that they were representatives of the ten tribes. They somehow escaped, and they came to... Uh, so uh, one was a man called Eldod Hadoni. Eldod from the tribe of Don. So he's quoted La Halacha. He lived in the ninth century. He's quoted in Halacha. Uh, the uh, the Rosh quotes him, others quote him. Enigmatic, mysterious figure. The second one, the most famous one, is a man called David Horuveni, who came at the uh, end of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th centuries to Europe, and he claimed that that he was an emissary of uh, the tribe of Ruvain and from the Jewish kingdom of the Ten Tribes, and he came with... Uh, all sorts of documents, diplomatic documents. And in that world, you know, he was accepted. He was accepted not only by the Jews, he was accepted by the non-Jews. Uh, he had an audience with the Pope, all the kings of Europe. And uh, he uh, inspired the uh, messianic ideas within the Jewish people. But finally he was arrested uh, by one of the uh, kings in Central Europe and he died in prison. But, uh, he, but that was a famous incident, David Oruvain. So uh, we don't know what happened to the Ten Tribes. It's interesting that in the world uh, everybody wants to be Jewish but the Jews so the English claim that they're descended from the Ten Tribes. 
Japanese say, yeah, descendants from the Ten Tribes. Everybody wants to be descended from the Ten Tribes. So this is the conversation that Shlomo Yudhavir puts in the mouth of the Ten Tribes speaking to the tribes of Yehuda and Binyamin. And that basically uh, is the uh, order of the kinos for uh, the, the night time. Now the uh, Kriyas HaTorah for uh, Tisha B'Av is taken from this week's Parsha, from the Parsha of Eschanon, where Moshe tells the Jewish people that uh, if you stray away from God, uh, you will have consequences that follow you. And that's the Parsha that's read for the Kriyas HaTorah. The Haftorah is taken from the Novi Yirmiyah. The Haftorah is uh, sung to the melody of Eicha. And it's a, really a, an elegy on uh, what happened uh, to the Jewish people. Even though the Novi is saying it out of prophecy, it hasn't happened yet. But he speaks of it as reality. At the end of the Haftorah, there are two famous psukim that I'd like to spend a moment on. Koamar Hashem, thus says God, Al Yishalel Chochom Bechochmoso, let not the wise man praise himself because of his wisdom. Al Yishalel Agibor Begurasso, and let not the strong man praise himself because of his strength. And let not the wealthy man praise himself because of his wealth. So the Mephorshim say that the uh, Navi here is talking not only about physical wealth and strength and wisdom, he's talking about the definitions that uh, Chazal gave to these concepts. The Gemara says, Ezeu Chochem. Who is a Chochem? The Gemara says, Aroa Sanola, someone that sees the future, that has vision, that's a Chochem. The Gemara says, Ezeu Oshir, who's a wealthy man, a Sameach Bechelko, someone that can be satisfied with what he has. The Gemara says, who's a Gibor? A strong man, Zakovish Yitzro, who is able to control his desires, is able to discipline himself. So the Novi says, even if you're that kind of a chokham, even if you're a person with great vision, with holy vision, and even if you're a person that you can control your desires, and even if you're a person that's satisfied with what you have, don't praise yourself yet. Because that's still not the goal. That's not what we're aiming for. Ki bezos yishalel hamishalel. This is what a person should praise himself. Haskel v'yadoa osi. Understand me. Understand what I want. To see the forest and not just the trees. I am the Lord that performs chesed, goodness, mishpot, justice, tzedakah, righteousness, boaretz. So uh, those are the 
fundamental principles that we see throughout the Tanakh that the prophets spoke about. That there has to be a society of goodness. People have to be nice one to another. And Chesed is not just giving money. Chesed is giving a smile, soft word, saying good morning. Mishpot has to be a just society, not a corrupt society. Be an element of rectitude to it. Stoka is righteousness. Righteousness uh, basically means that there are certain absolute standards. Certain things are right and certain things are wrong. These are the things that I want, God says. So that's the goal. That's what Tisha B'Av is supposed to bring us to. To understand what God wants from us. So many times in life, uh, one of my favorite phrases is that, you know, people just don't get it. They don't understand and you don't get it, so then uh, it's hard, hard, hard to uh, to achieve this goal. I have a story that I uh, that always illustrates it to me. I have a friend of mine, uh, older than I am, that he fought in the American Army in the Second World War, and the uh, the uh, The rotation method then in the army is not the way it is today that uh, they would rotate veteran soldiers out and put in fresh soldiers. But there you stayed in the front lines until you got killed and the war ended. So 80% of the soldiers that landed at D-Day uh, never survived to the end of the war. Because uh, the statistics are against you. In any event, he fought through Europe, landed on Normandy on D-Day, fought through the entire way into Germany. The last days of the war, the last days of the war, uh, uh, Hitler had old men and young boys fighting. Now, uh, the young boys were fanatical. They were Hitler youth. They were the suicide bombers of their day. And uh, an 11 year old with a rifle can also kill you. So he told me that he and his friend, his buddy, uh, were hiding behind the wall of a farmhouse and they were pinned down by fire from these kids. And he said that he was overcome by uh, a tremendous uh, sense of hunger. So he reached down in his boot to take out candy bar that he had, part of the American rations, give a person instant sugar. And he bent down, a bullet shot over his head and killed his buddies next to him. So he came to a yeshiva in Chicago uh, 50 years after D-Day. They 
asked him to speak about his experiences, etc. And uh, he told that story of how uh, in war one realizes that there's a personal God, that there's Ashgacha Protest. He told that story. Someone raised his hand and asked him, was the candy bar kosher? So that's when you don't get it, right? I had that experience yesterday. I had a meeting with uh, Yosef Mendelovich, who was uh, one of the great prisoners of Zion, and who uh, spent 11 years in the Gulag, a great tzaddik. I mean, he's just an unbelievable personality. Great Jew. And uh, he uh, was one of uh, a group of people that attempted to hijack a plane from Leningrad to have it fly to the west because they wanted to come out of Russia into Israel. He wrote a book about it called Mifza Chatuna, Operation Wedding. That's what they call the plan. The book is going to be translated into English now if it's in Hebrew. Uh, it's just remarkable, the book, and the person is remarkable. So he said that he went to a certain yeshiva also uh, in the United States, and uh, he was asked to speak about his experiences, and he spoke about his experiences and the gulag and everything. And so uh, when it was over, one of the uh, students uh, asked, he said that, did you uh, consult with the Gedolim before you uh, attempted to escape? So, again, you, know, you don't get it, you don't get it. So the Novi wants us to get it. That's basically what Aftor is about. That's really what Tishiba is about, to get it. To know me, to deal with me. So to deal with God, one needs a certain breadth of vision. One has to see uh, past, the present, the future. One has to see one's role. A lot of uh, factors that enter into Haskell Diodos. But that's what the Nauti wishes for us. That's what he demands for us. All right, now the kilos of the day, which are uh, many in number, there are 40 kilos. So as I mentioned, over half of them are from Rabbi Lozar Kalir. And Rabbi Lozar Kalir, the first uh, 21 of the kinos are all Rabbi Lozar Kalir. And they are uh, difficult Hebrews. <laughs> And they make reference to many midrashim and many things that are written in the Talmud. And so therefore, uh, it's not only something to be uh, recited, it is something to uh, be studied. Again, you will notice that he maintains the rhyme and he also maintains the meter. And uh, that's the greatness of the poetry. And his thing is always based on Echo. 
on the Psukim of Eicha, in most of the uh, poetry, he has an acrostic hidden, which spells his name, Elazar Barabi Kalir. But in Chov uh, Beis, in the 22nd uh, Kina, we have the mayor of Rottenburg, and this Kina uh, refers to the Asara Haruge Malchus, and martyrs that were killed by the Romans. And this, uh, we have a similar poem that we recite Yom Kippur for Mincha, or in some communities it's recited in the Musaf. Uh, service of Yom Kippur which records the martyrdom of the ten great men that are mentioned in the Talmud, the martyrdom at the hands of the Romans now it did not happen in one day, they, in fact the ten men are not even contemporaries it's over the, spirit, the period of almost a century but in the poems it's like all lumped together as though it was all in one day and uh, among them naturally is the story of Rabbi Akiva who was uh, whose skin was flayed died, was tortured to death so he was killed in Caesarea, Caesarea and according to Jewish tradition his body was taken to be buried in Tiberias where uh, the cave is shown today as being his, his burial place now uh also, according to Jewish tradition, he was killed Arab Yom Kippur. And we remember Rabbi Akiva in the opening prayers on the night of Yom Kippur. Because we say the verse from uh, Tehillim sounds, Or Zorua la Tzadik, Simcha. There is a light that extends for the righteous one. And uh, for those who have a straight, correct heart, there will yet be joy. So the, that posseh refers to Rabbi Akiva. And how do we know it refers to Rabbi Akiva? Because his name is spelled in an acrostic of the last letters of the words of the posseh. Or is Resh, that's Rabbi. Zarua is Ayin. Latsadik is Kuf, the Yishrei is Yud, Lev is Beis, Simcha is Hey. So that spells Ayin, Kuf, Yud, Beis, Hey is Akiva. So there's a uh, discussion in Halacha whether Akiva is a Jewish name, a Hebrew name, or it's a non-Hebrew name. The rule is, my friends, that if it's a Hebrew name and it ends with that sound, then it's always a hey is the final. Like Sora, Rivka, Yona, Micha, they're all spelled with a hey. But if it's an Aramaic name or a non-Hebrew name, then it ends with an Aleph. Abba. Uh, Acha. All of those names all end with an Aleph. Now in our Gemara, in the printed Gemara, 
Akiva is always spelled with an Aleph, as though it were not a Hebrew name. But the Orzarua lived in the 14th century in Bohemia, and so he says that Akiva is really a Hebrew name, and it should always be spelled with a Hey. So there are Akivas in the world that spell it with a Hey, and there are those spell it with an Aleph. You'll say, what's the difference? The difference is, practical difference in Allah is, that if there's a divorce, how do we spell the name? Because uh, the rules regarding names in the divorce are enormously strict. So we usually leave it up to how the person himself spelled the name. But here we have the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva. And then we have the martyrdom of uh, Rabbi Yehuda ben Bobo. Rabbi Yehuda ben Bobo was the one that uh, saved the Torah by uh, giving smicha to his to the five Talmudim, to Rameir, Rabbi Yehuda, Nelson, Shimon. And then we have uh, Rabbi Hananiah ben Trajon, who was burned with the Sefer Torah. And uh, there we have the famous Gemara that uh, he said that the parchment burns, but the letters fly in the air. I believe we will uh, start with this um, lecture tomorrow morning on Tisha B'Av morning here at JM in the AM, the second half of the Kinnis Overview by Beryl Wine. Uh, before our own Kinnis service tomorrow morning right here at JMNAM. Our plan is at 7.30 tomorrow morning to have Rabbi Goldwasser join us, as we've done in past years, and recite Kinnis on the air for a Tisha B'Av morning. Reminder, Mincha tomorrow at 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Peace Wall, Rabbi Avi Weiss will preside over the annual Tisha B'Av Mincha service, 2 o'clock tomorrow, the Isaiah Peace Wall opposite the United Nations, 1st Avenue and 43rd Street. Bring your towels and fill in. The good news is that the... Uh, scaffolding, the construction work is uh, still up at the Isaiah Wall which means there will be some shade protecting everybody from the hot conditions tomorrow so uh, please come on out and get set for a 2 o'clock Mincha at 43rd and 1st Avenue in New York City after our broadcast tomorrow morning which will include the uh, comprehensive Kinnis service that Rabbi Goldwasser and I will preside over. We will uh, present the OU's presentation of Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib through the day and their respective presentations in Florida and Jerusalem. Uh, followed at about 7.15 tomorrow night by Charlie Harari, who's going to be live on the radio at 6.20 on the AM dial and on multiple places and venues throughout the world, including our org. He will be closing out Tisha B'Av on a positive note with the folks from Project Inspire. And everybody is invited to uh, stay tuned in all day long to our stream for appropriate Tisha B'Av programming. We think you will find it enlightening. So that happens... uh, That happens tomorrow uh, all through the day here at JM&AM. Org. A reminder that on Wednesday we will, on the 10th of Av, do what we normally do, which is present the stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach between 6 and 9 in the morning. Join us for that on Wednesday morning, the 10th of Av. I'll be traveling up to Camp Hask to do Thursday morning show from there on Wednesday afternoon. So get ready if you're in Hask Wednesday to say hi 
to all of us at JM and the AM. At the 12 noon tomorrow, excuse me, 12 noon on Wednesday, uh, on the 10th of Av, Yassi Zweig will transition from our a cappella format to our regular format during the Wednesday Z-Report live lunch. So get set for that on our stream at jmnam.org. And then we'll get back to our regular schedule and uh, continue presenting the programs that we normally do. Now, I know that uh, there are plenty of people, uh, newscasters and others, that are warning everybody about the weather this week. I do want to remind everybody that, because we just heard of another horrifying tragedy uh, from Israel just moments ago. We heard about this, where yet another child was left in a car by accident. And that child is no longer with us. Um, it, it is so vital not only to stay as uh, cool as possible, especially with the big fast coming up. All that is obvious. But please, please, when it comes to our children, do whatever is necessary to remind yourself that that child might be in the car. And uh, you don't want, God forbid, God forbid, to leave a child in the car and... uh to, God forbid, experience what this uh, family in Israel is now experiencing. So please, it is going to be a very hot week and a very difficult one weather-wise. Please use common sense and double and triple check everything you need to as much as possible. J.M. and the A.M. Achenu Israel and Achim Achem, brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, J.M. and the A.M. dot O.R.G. And that will wrap things up for this era of Tishabov. Tomorrow morning, our Kinnis service and a comprehensive program to help uh, everybody have a meaningful and inspiring fast. Till then, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember to past, live the present, and trust the future.